This is the story of Henry Sutton, Australia's greatest inventor. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Henry Sutton story, in which we're following the life of a man whose inventions and innovations changed the world. In this episode, we're going to delve into something that has remained something of a secret for more than 100 years, and reveal what happens when Australian inventors get on the wrong side of Australian government departments. The year is 1893. Rudolf Diesel receives a patent for the diesel engine. U.S. Marines are sent to help anti-monarchists overthrow Queen Lilikalani, last royal ruler of Hawaii. And the World's Columbia Exhibition is held in Chicago to honour the 400th anniversary of the arrival of Christopher Columbus to the New World. The very first Ferris wheel is on show. William Wrigley unveils something called Juicy Fruit Chewing Gum. And behind the scenes of the Columbia Exhibition, there's a courtroom battle between Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse, the financier and employer of Nikola Tesla. It was one of the crucial moments in the struggle between AC and DC electricity producers. It was a life or death struggle to make their systems the national standard. And Henry Sutton and his wife Elizabeth arrived back in Melbourne. After sailing on a steamship from London for 50 days, they arrived just in time for a banking crash on the New York stock market to help kick off the Australian banking crisis of 1893. However, in Henry's absence, the family business has been thriving, opening new stores in Bendigo, a new store in Melbourne, and now the Grand Emporium on Sturge Street in the heart of Ballarat. He's had almost two months at sea, thinking about what to do next after meeting Nikola Tesla and discovering the possibilities of wireless. He's also inspired by two other major technological revolutions that are about to sweep the world. Motor cars and bicycles. By 1895, Henry would begin his first experiments with different types of combustion engines. And he would also be in charge of the major diversification of the Sutton music business to a company called Sutton's Cycle Agency. Now a quick word on bicycles. It was only in 1885 when John Starley invented the modern bicycle design and shape with a chain drive and two normal sized wheels. It was called the Rover and it was much easier to ride than the penny farthing. The world is going crazy for bicycles. And Henry sees this as a great opportunity for the Sutton family business and starts importing bikes as well as the latest innovations like one piece cranks and self oiling hubs and of course he starts custom building bicycles to order. And at night, he turns the bicycle workshop into a combustion engine workshop. He attaches a bicycle wheel to a device to test each engine he builds. And he's not just testing engine design, he's also testing types of fuel. Because this is 1895, petrol is not refined the way it is in the 21st century. It's dangerous and volatile stuff. And there's also the fact that people who needed to use petrol had to import their own supplies for private use at four shillings per gallon. Henry Sutton experimented with benzene, was one of the first people to trial kerosene, otherwise known as paraffin oil, as an engine fuel. And not only was it four times cheaper than petrol, you could buy it at corner shops. And of course, Henry investigated the design and building of an electric car. In 1898, he published a detailed letter in a trade publication under the title 
electric motor versus oil motor. It detailed all the results of his intensive research, concluding, quote, However desirable it may be that electricity should be the mode of energy used in automotive vehicles, the time has not yet arrived for its practical application. There is only one known method of utilizing electrical energy for automotive purposes, and that is through the agency of the storage battery. It has advanced very little in the past 20 years. This coming from the man who had invented the lead-acid battery some 17 years earlier. He's also been building vehicles to put these engines in. In 1897, Henry imports a Beeston motorized trike, a three-wheeled motorbike, and replaces the engine with the one he's built and tested. He does a lot of publicity about it, and organises his chief engineer, John Menny, to ride it from Melbourne to Ballarat. It's the first long-distance journey in a motor vehicle, what was then a 250-kilometre ride from Melbourne to Ballarat, and the interest is enormous. John Menny starts up the trike and leaves the Melbourne post office at 9am. There's no such thing as paved roads or highways, and by the time he gets past Bacchus Marsh, the roads are really rough. He rides into Sturt Street, Ballarat, some 11 hours later, and there's a massive crowd on hand to watch his arrival. There's chaos in the streets, and many rides the trike straight into the Sutton's music store, lest there be an incident. But then, due to chanting crowds, decides to reappear and do a victory lap of Sturt Street for the crowd. Along with John Many, Henry also designs and builds two cars. And more than 100 years later, one of those cars reappears during a segment on a television program about private and public museum collections. He's sitting on a couch in the year 2009, watching television, yeah. what happens? Oh, I was watching the Australian show The Collectors and uh, uh, they were doing a story on old cars and I thought I'd pay attention because Henry made some of Australia's first cars and I thought, oh, I might learn something. Anyway, so he's going through the car collection at the museum in Tasmania and, and he was sitting, at the end, he was sitting in this little green car and he was talking about how this was made in Ballarat in 1900 but nobody knows who made it. And I'm like, my ears just pricked. I went, oh, gosh, hang on a minute. <laughs> and it's sort of, I'm just looking at the car, I'm going, oh, I think so, because there's cars I know Henry made that I have not found because I've got mentions of them. And so I immediately contacted the White House Museum where they were located to explain who I was and who Henry was and, and if they had any other information about the car. And so they sent me a photo and some information. I said, well, uh that's Henry and his wife, and I said, and sitting in the car from 1900, and I said, oh, and um, Henry made that, <laughs> and they were so excited, and we swapped information, and, I, and then I went hunting for more information about the car, and I had a little bit after I'd researched a bit more, and I followed the timeline of the car and what had happened from the story, and from journals in, in England to here and newspapers. Meanwhile, back in the closing years of the 1890s, Henry keeps on building engines till he's finally happy with the design. And on December the 7th, 1898, he lodges a patent titled Improvements in and Relating to Combustion Engines. Henry builds two motorcycles and later that year, he unveils the Sutton Autocar. It's got a single-cylinder engine. It's the world's first front-wheel drive car. It's got four-wheel steering and it's capable of 22 kilometers per hour 
or 14 miles per hour in the imperial measurements of the day. He spends the next 10 years developing carburetors, improved engine types and building new cars, negotiating patents and sales in the US, England and Europe, and from as far away as Russia and Africa. But his restless mind, as ever, is ticking away at something else. His experiments with trying to send images via wireless technology have led him to a huge discovery about radio and, after a decade of experiments and research, it all gets very serious. The year is 1908. Ernest Shackleton would set off from New Zealand on the first of three expeditions to Antarctica. Ernest Rutherford would receive the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. Henry Ford produces the first Model T Ford in Detroit, Michigan. And by October of this year, a long-running feud between Sydney and Melbourne would be settled, and Australia's new capital city, called Canberra, would be created. But Henry Sutton would be entangled in a dispute with the Australian government's most powerful department that would take up the next four years of his life, until the day he dies. Henry had spent the better part of 1907 perfecting a new model of radio, and in February the next year, writes to the Minister of Defence. Sir, having given some attention to wireless telegraphy, I wish to inform you I have a system of producing ether wave storms, which, if arranged at distant points around our coast, will effectively cut and destroy the wireless communications of any naval power approaching the coast with hostile intentions. The power to do this, I think, should be a carefully guarded secret, and should not be known even to the wireless operators. The radius of action is only limited by the power at disposal. Yours faithfully, Henry Sutton. Let's talk also about some of the classic photos there are of Henry Sutton, and there aren't many. There's one of him holding a box, and there is a cable to an earpiece in his ear. What is this? That's his portable radio. That's the receiver. The transmitter for that was so small, it sat in the palm of your hand. This is the first one in the world, yeah. So let's talk about what when he's developed this. Uh, he, he designed this by 1907, and that's where in 1908 he's, he, he wanted to demonstrate that to the Navy and the wireless system he created in, in his home in, in Malvern, and he wanted to show them what he'd come up with. He wasn't the only experimenter at the time. They looked at all, all the, the wireless experimenters at the time and looked at their systems, but Henry seemed to make the papers an awful lot <laughs> because that's how much interest there was and the, the experiments, him being actually in Melbourne and most of the wireless experimenters were in Sydney. Over the next five months, he does trials of his system in secret at the Victoria Barracks on St Kilda Road in Melbourne. And by July, it's agreed to invite the Melbourne media to watch a demonstration. But there had been a big mistake. Someone forgot to tell the Postmaster General's department. At the time, the Postmaster General's Department was the largest public department in the Australian government. It controlled the postal services, but also the telephone and telegraph services. It was responsible for 90% of the Australian government budget. They had just rejected an offer from the Marconi Company to set up wireless stations in Australia. And the chief engineer for the Postmaster General's Department, a guy called Genvi, really didn't like this guy Sutton from Malvern. The Postmaster General Office demands Henry Sutton take out a licence, and Henry refuses. Yes, the Post Office didn't even have a, a 
telegraphy system of their own, wireless telegraphy system of their own, but they had control over it. And you had to apply for an experimental licence through the Postmaster General. And in doing that, you had to pay an exorbitant fee, which was exorbitant at the time. And then you had to tell, tell the Postmaster General exactly how it worked and what, you know, and keep keep it regulated and give him all the details. Well, what Henry was working on was actually uh, in, in many ways top secret because in times of war what he was uncovering was you couldn't tell anyone so they could actually jam signals and wireless signals and that and if he told the world they would find out how it worked and he didn't want to do that and then the Postmaster General's nose out of joint that the fact that he knew nothing about it refused to give Henry a wireless licence and Henry refused to to give over the details of what he was doing and then the Navy was absolutely livid that couldn't experiment <laughs> and Henry was throwing his arms up in the air and going, it's all too hard and I think I'll just give up. And the, and the Navy and the Defence Department said, no, 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 well, hang on a minute, we might give you a royal commission and that'll take you out of their jurisdiction into ours. And there was a barrage of letters back and forth between the Defence Department, the Navy, the Post Office, Henry. And this battle went on for four years, four years of just all he wanted to do, Henry wanted to do, was donate his wireless system to Australia. Now, during this period, Henry has found himself a champion inside the Australian Defence Department someone who was urging him on to continue experimenting and testing this new radio system. Yes, uh, Creswell w w was a great advocate of Henry's. He, he, w he was the architect of the Australian Navy. It was his vision to create a Navy of its own separate from, from Britain. And as we know, that came about. And there's a naval station in Sydney named in, in his honour. And he, he was a remarkable man with a great vision. And he, he, he wanted Henry to give, you know, his experiments freely. But the frustration and the letters back and forth and the arguments between the Navy and the postmaster trying to get them to realise it's so important for him not to give out the secret of what's doing, but then the postmaster general said, no, he has to tell us how it works for us to give him the licence, you know, and we have to oversee that. Well, it just was just not on and it was just... The paperwork trail is just phenomenal about it. 1908 is the year US President Theodore Roosevelt has ordered two squadrons of US Navy battleships to travel the world, both as a sign of goodwill to its allies, but also to project to the world America's rise as a major naval power. This massive convoy of ships becomes known as the Great White Fleet. It sets sail from San Francisco in July of 1908, its first destination being New Zealand. And Creswell has a challenge for Henry Sutton. It was about six months after he first contacted the Navy and it was in July. This is when he did his first public experiments and Creswell was very, very tactful. He invited the Navy over, the US Navy over for, for a world, world visit and um, he knew they were coming and he said, well, we'll, well, you know, see, can you contact the Navy? And the, the, the Great White Fleet was actually just off Pago Pago in the middle of the Pacific and they get a call, do, 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 do. Henry, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> they were actually shocked because they, the, the, the system that they had, they had to relay through New Zealand to contact them and send the message back. But Henry's radio could go 
that far and they were absolutely quite surprised. So when they arrived in Melbourne, the first thing the wireless guys wanted to do was knock on Henry's door, which they did, and they spent two two years communicating and they took back some of his ideas and wireless equipment to use and experiment with. And the rest is sort of history about that. There's been a 10-year search that I've been a part of as well, trying to get into the US naval records because the Australian naval records are, shall we say, not complete. But somewhere in the US Navy records, there is a logbook of a ship in the Great White Fleet 1908 saying, we were contacted by someone called Henry Sutton today. I've actually got the dates and times of communications. Henry wrote down on one of his little pieces of paper that I now have, and he's, he's actually written the dates and times where they communicated off Albany, uh, off Western Australia, as they were leaving. So with with those dates and, and, and actual times will be logged in the logbook of the Connecticut. I'm sure it must have been the Connecticut, the ship Connecticut. So um, I'm hoping that one day I can get over there and have a look at those. That There'll be a lot of mention about Henry and his communications while he was here in the logbooks and in their files because the radio guys from the US fleet corresponded for two years after their visit with Henry. So I'm hoping that eventually someday I can go over and do that. Pago Pago is 5,000 kilometres away from Melbourne. We don't know exactly what was transmitted, but we might assume Henry began his message with this signal in Morse code. It's an international code, and it means, I want to communicate with you. Maybe he included his name. One year previously, Marconi had set up the world's first transatlantic radio transmitters between Clifton in Ireland and Glace Bay in Nova Scotia. That's a distance of 3,500 kilometres. And while the US Navy and the fledgling Australian Navy Command are looking at Sutton's new radio system, which he calls Australian Wireless, Henry does another experiment from his home. It just so happens Mr. Genvy from the Postmaster General's Department is doing a wireless experiment from his place on the same day. And the power of Henry's wireless system ruins that experiment. And when they read who is behind this interference, the full force of the Postmaster General's Department is brought to bear, and Henry Sutton is forbidden from further experiments and threatened with jail. The Age newspaper finds out about this and publishes this article in October 1908. Of course it is impossible for an inventor to test anything by which the ethereal forces are to be made subservient unless he had a certain freedom in the use of the atmosphere. Being unwilling to run the risk of fine or imprisonment, Mr. Sutton, at an early stage in his operation, made inquiries and was told by a high officer of the Defence Department to go ahead, as it would be all right, whilst the Postmaster General also informed him, as he understood, that no official notice would be taken of his proceedings. Since the publication of some wonderful successes achieved by the inventor, however, such as the tapping of wireless messages which were sent from New Zealand to the American fleet in Sydney Harbour and the designing of an installation that will send wireless messages between Victoria and Tasmania at a cost much below the departmental estimate, the only remote justification for this seems to have been not the interception of the American fleet messages but the hushing up 
accidentally as it happens, of some departmental experiments. With Mr. Sutton's latest experiences, it is evident that he is greatly confined in the exercise of his genius as an inventor by the absurd attitude of the Postal Department, which, having first cornered the government rights to a deal with electricity as a messenger, now apparently wants to prevent all progress. This, of course, is not merely a private, but a public wrong. But it's no good. The Navy considers granting an officer's commission to Henry Sutton to remove him from the Postmaster General's jurisdiction. It takes another four years of letters and correspondence, bouncing responsibilities from department to department. Finally, Henry receives a license and an official radio call sign. Henry held number two license, but the first one in Victoria. So that tells you how early on it is. And Lorraine won't let me tell you what it is. What was Henry's call sign? Ah, that's a secret until you read the book. I've read the book. Just, you have to tell me now. No. I have to fly out tomorrow, Lorraine. No, no. People have to read the book. <laughs> All right. I promised all the wireless guys that they'd all find out at the same time. It's the call sign's been missing from Australian call sign history for over a hundred years, and I'd like to present it to everyone at the same time. So, with great respect to Lorraine Branch, here is Henry Sutton's call sign, given to you in Morse code, one hundred and ten years since its last broadcast. Henry's health is now starting to fail. He watches helplessly as the Postmaster General's department calls for tenders for a new wireless system from various international companies and refuses to acknowledge the system Henry is offering to the Australian government for free. But in the meantime, he's made another discovery and this time stands his ground and asserts his ownership of the idea. It's something that will take another 40 years to come to fruition and when it does, it will create the foundation for modern communications technology. This is episode 5 of the Henry Sutton story. Thank you for listening. My name is Jared Watt. And with a reminder that this podcast is based chiefly on primary research published in Lorraine Branch's book, Henry Sutton, An Interview Man, available right now online. I look forward to bringing you episode 6.